Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. (laughs) He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. We have the whole gang together to talk about more topics this week, and we'll kick it off heading over to Ian and talking about kind of our history with money and how that shapes how we view it later on in life and impacts how we save. And there's a lot of interesting research that's been done. You want to kick us off, Ian, with sharing the article that you're talking about? Yeah, sure. So the article we'll be talking about a little bit is uh, an article by Rianca Dorsonville in Forbes that talks about why we can't talk about money without talking about culture. And the interesting points that she poses, which we have conversations around a lot, are how the elements of your history, your culture, and the way you were raised actually impact the way people approach money. What you'll realize if you have conversations with friends about money or other family members is that they usually have super different money habits than you do, right? Whether that's saving more, spending more. Um, they have different kind of idioms they use. So the three contexts that Rianca talks about in this article that frame the way we look at money are your personal history, the community you were raised in, which includes your friends and your family, and then your daily activities, um, the, the things you're currently doing, which you have the most control over, obviously. The past is the past, right? So any thoughts on that, guys, before we dive in? Yeah, I feel like I've heard lots of different examples where like people will say, you know, rich people, you know, maybe someone grew up in a family where uh, their neighbor was wealthy or someone was wealthy and they were really mean about it. And they're like, oh, rich people are terrible. Like, I don't want like almost to the point where they don't want to be rich. And just like having those underlying things that are are shaping the way that you view wealth and view savings and things like that um, are, are really interesting. They're definitely there. And I feel like the first people to that usually teach you things about money are probably your parents. So, you know, if they were diligent, frugal savers, uh, a lot of people will, will kind of just slowly morph into that where, or even if maybe they were having a lot of fights or something around uh, money, that can certainly shape the, the view. Um, I don't have like a bunch of statistics to, to lay down on you guys, but I completely agree that it definitely shapes. And that's a great question I like to bring up with my clients when I usually start an engagement. Yeah. The, the one that stands out when you say like, uh, having encountered a mean rich person so you don't think rich people are nice is the money is the root of all evil. Like that's something that you hear all the time as just kind of a cultural expression. And really, you know, the the generalizations are what creates the problem, right? Because they're double-edged swords. Obviously, if you think money is the root of all evil, cool, you understand that money is not everything in life. But on the other side, you might be afraid of accumulating wealth because you don't want to quote unquote become evil. 
right? So a lot of these stories have both sides to them. Totally. A lot of times money just exacerbates or makes someone more of themselves. So if they're an asshole and they're poor, they're going to be more of an asshole when they're rich. (laughs) And that's always what I've heard too is money just kind of accelerates what that that does for somebody. Yeah, I agree. Money just gives you a bigger platform to stand on, right? Um, So the, the other lens that I kind of wanted to talk about this through is in order to, you know, maybe speak to some of the new parents here, since we have a couple on the podcast, or speak uh, to some of the older parents or expecting parents, what are some ways that you think you can positively influence your kids' money stories? I mean, I think you just got to model what you're trying to portray. And so I I think there's some some good books and some people that have really thought about some of this stuff. But I think the first step is really understanding your own money history and understanding where you're going to have your own blind spots or your own issues, because it's really challenging to try to teach somebody without that. I mean, as I have mentioned before, my wife is a counselor and she has a pretty big uh, I know in her industry, her profession, it's a lot of, it's really hard to do counseling for people if you haven't gone through counseling yourself to understand that process and, and to kind of unpack your own things. So I think there's some truth to that. If if you don't understand where your own issues are uh, with money, good, bad, and otherwise, uh, you know, know thyself, it's going to be challenging to pass it on to your children. Um, but I think the fact that if you're even trying to start and you're thinking about that, that's going to put you pretty far ahead than, than a lot of people. So just trying to instill good habits, you know, spending, saving, um, and philanthropy, um, are probably three good buckets to really kind of think about. Um, and maybe you won't get it hundred percent perfect, but, uh, it's a dang good start. I'll give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Justin Gaselli. He had Frazier Rice on his podcast and we'll link to it. And basically, Fraser Rice had consulted with extremely high net worth, wealthy families and the dynamics of money through generations, and then basically broke it down into how you can work with your own children if you don't have hundreds of millions of dollars and have those kind of discussions. And really what a lot of it boiled down to was involving them in understanding what it costs to run your family, getting them involved, showing them how to pay bills, showing them what it costs when we go to the grocery store and what that means and hey, we're gonna go on vacation, we can have a really nice vacation and we can do go one time a year or we can split it up and maybe do two smaller vacations and let them choose and be involved with trade-offs with money. And there was a lot of really good advice and it's a, a podcast that I shared in my client newsletters because I thought it was so impactful and I had some good feedback from people that had said they listened to it. So highly recommend listening to Justin and Frazier go through that. And Frazier has a book as well out and I'm blanking on it right now, but they talk about that at the beginning of the podcast. So I think just showing and getting them involved and explaining, you know, hey, it costs X amount of dollars to live in this house and this house is great, but this is what it looks like um, and how you save and why you save and what that does and the power of just even compounding, just showing them uh, I have clients that bought Apple stock when his first son was born. He's going to show him as he's getting older what that looks like. And that was the reason why he owns that stock is it's going to be his lesson for finance for his kids. So, Yeah, very cool. I, I agree with your take that the best thing you can do is probably be open and honest about money with your kids. I, I see a lot of parents instinctively trying to hide it because they maybe they feel shameful about the money they make or don't make. Um, and I think that that creates the same feeling in the child, right? 
Um, Because then money's not to be talked about in our household kind of thing. But I don't think it's always shame. I think, you know, you get to a spot where you're, you know, if you're a family and you're doing really well, you don't want, you may not necessarily want your children to know that you're doing really well and them talking about that at school. And, you know, like that can open you up to other issues. So it's not always shame. It could be just, hey, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily want all the neighbors and all the people at my church or my school knowing all this, all these different things. So I do think there's kind of a balance and, you know, especially too, as you kind of get up that ladder there to kind of say, okay, well, I don't really, you know, I don't have the scarcity issue anymore. Now I have this, this surplus. So how do we really teach my children about, you know, having this surplus and, and managing, managing money when you're not, you know, when you're not necessarily in the same spot where somebody is, you know, under a specific income where like you have a scarcity problem, you really have to decide like what type of food you're going to buy and things like that. I think for a lot of folks we're dealing with, you know, or that we work with, it's kind of like, all right, you've got enough. So these are choices and trade-offs you have to make that are um, much different than I think some other people. I think Colin and Ian and Dwight, we probably all asked the same question, but the one that I ask is what did money mean growing up for you? And for me personally, it was absolutely the scarcity mindset and being very, very frugal, with where money goes. And that definitely shapes the way that I look at it even today, but I, I guess I've recognized it enough and it's changed, but you know, being very, very conservative for a long time with, with where that money goes, but also starting a business, I think changes that too. Yeah. It's hard to be conservative in the early stages of a business, right? When you're watching the numbers go down consistently. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but, but there's a lot of, a lot of people out there that have taken risks and can be rewarded and not having that scarcity mindset of never taking any risk. And I think that can hold a lot of people back if that's the only example they've ever seen. Yeah, I think my attitude definitely around money, but it was more about risk because both of my parents started their own businesses and their own companies and uh, have been entrepreneurs for 35 plus years. And uh, to them, the risk, they always like to bet on themselves and they're always like, you know, the risk of having a corporate job is potential layoffs and things like that, things that you can't control. So to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have the risk beyond me of staying in business because at least I know I'm not going to, you know, get laid off or replaced or whatever the case is. So I think my attitude about risk was really shaped by my parents. And I kind of took on the same feeling of I would rather be able to bet on myself and be able to create my own destiny, if you will, instead of not that you can't when you're, uh, you know, climbing your way up the corporate ladder and trying to become uh, a CEO or whatever the case is, you know, there's a ton of opportunity there that maybe I'd no longer have the chance to to take on, at least in the short term. But yeah, it's 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 very interesting how you are shaped either with money or risk or just your attitude around money. Uh, it, it is pretty amazing. It is definitely worth acknowledging and thinking about. Yeah, I think I think probably my biggest money story comes from uh, both my parents being very hardworking people. So when my mom was obviously at home taking care of us, she she decided she didn't want to work while we were kids. My dad wouldn't come home till like. 7 p.m. every night and so I just assumed that's what being a, an adult was and like that's that's the schedule you had to have to be successful up until I started working in this profession and I was doing that and my father-in-law was like why do you work so late all the time and I was like I, I don't know I just feel like that's what I should do he's like cut it out 
<laughs> enjoy your life. So that was that was kind of a big wake up call for me where it's like, oh, there's probably a happy medium where you can work hard, but you can also enjoy your life. That's that's interesting. Let me think about that. <laughs> well, I think there's a different mentality around that now than there was probably, you know, 30 years ago in the 80s and things like that. So I, I do think we also have technology we didn't have before then. So it, it does kind of help. But, um, you know, there was re- a recent Wall Street Journal article that talked about, though, that we're always connected. So there's part of that challenge. But my my own money story, I mean, again, I, I grew up north of Detroit, you know, Detroit hustles harder, I guess. And, you know, my father owned his own business and my mom's dad owned a business as well. So I've never been a big corporate person, even though we have very large corporations in, in the Detroit area. So it's always been about doing it your, not yourself per se, but Carving your own destiny, I think, Colin, like what you said, is rather bet on myself. And, you know, if I fail, but at least it's my own rather than um, some other way. So I I do have to kind of keep that in my own head uh, and try to be cognizant of that, that not everybody does that. I mean, now I living out here in Colorado, there's a lot of people that have a much different mindset um, about work and and money. Um, So I try to try to remember that it's not there's not always a right way to do things. Yeah. Well, thanks for your thoughts, guys. I thought that was a pretty good topic, and we covered it kind of a lot. It was an interesting conversation, but I figure we should uh, transition into Tweet of the Week now. And our fancy random number generator chose Colin. So, Colin, tell us what we're talking about. All right. I'm glad you guys picked me. So, uh, this was a tweet that was actually a link to a podcast, but would love to get you guys' take from Derek Thompson, who is a writer at The Atlantic and author uh, or I guess maybe I should say a uh, host of the podcast Crazy Genius. And it is he has just the most interesting stuff. I listened to a podcast yesterday on a run about Facebook. Number one, he was just talking a lot about the privacy issues, and I never realized how many issues that they actually have had with with the government and with legislation and when the government tells them to you know create privacy uh, options and things like that they were like oh yeah we will we will and then they ended up not doing it and they've just been in way more trouble than i ever actually realized and are gathering probably more information than i ever realized so that's kind of one take and then the second take is that they're uh their revenue is obviously generated mainly from from advertising and it's really interesting they made the point that it's kind of the race to the bottom for quality of content on this platform and talking about news and what type of news is angled towards you based on your demographic so all just so much clickbait um it re- i never really th- i thought facebook was kind of going to be our end all be all social media platform but it really made me think that there is so much room for improvement that this might be kind of our social experiment for you know the the early 2000s and maybe in the next 5 10 15 years we'll see a new platform emerge that is more about quality instead of just quantity and clickbait stuff uh, it, it was just really interesting um, so kind of a lot to unpack there but number 1 was privacy number 2 was just kind of spammy clickbait content that really isn't about quality message it's more just about getting your attention for two seconds well if you don't pay for something you are the like you're the revenue source if you're not paying for it and it's free you are how they're driving their revenue so if you're paying for something a lot of times they're not going to be able to or they still can but maybe they're not selling your data like facebook has just done an awesome job at getting so many people to share so much and i don't know if when everyone saw instagram and facebook down recently 
the photos, there was a description in the photos of what each person's face, two women smiling or whatever, like they're doing all that stuff for self-driving vehicle. Like they're selling all this data to go out to all these different industries. And it's fantastic from that standpoint, like depending on what you think about, you know, the next 20 or 30 years, it's all going to be around privacy and how much do people really want and value privacy? I, I don't know. I think one of the things that's interesting about all this is it's a new industry. I mean, I, you know, I'm not that old, but I was in college when Facebook started, when it was only allowed to be available to, you know, when they only allowed college kids to be available or um, to sign up for it. So I think there's, there's a lot of this, hey, they're getting in trouble for these different things, but these just weren't issues that we had even 25 years ago. So they're kind of making up the rules themselves. And then you've got Congress and states and all these different other people trying to legislate and trying to, you're basically trying to create rules on the fly for something that has never even been done before. And then of course, like, who are you going to ask? Well, you're going to ask all the social media companies, like what the rules should be. So there's to some extent setting their own rules and this isn't unique. Um, you know, again, as a CPA, uh, when we're doing say like audits, if you're going to audit a telecommunication company, I think folks forget that like AT&T, Verizon, and some of these others, you know, like they have more CPAs on staff than a lot of these actual accounting firms. And so therefore it's like, they're going to set the records or set the rules on this. You're seeing the same thing in social media and things like that. So it's going to be up to consumers, us, to kind of say, hey, don't sell my stuff. You know, maybe it's worth paying $10 a month or whatever it is to have access to these services so you don't so you don't sell it all. So I don't know. It's it's a really it's interesting to see what's going to happen, but um yeah, it's just it's just a whole new thing that it's like okay, we're going to play this game and make the rules up as we go. So on the rules subject, I think it's interesting because a lot of the people legislating on this stuff aren't the consumers that are using it. So they don't actually understand the platforms at all. You know, if you have a 70 year old person trying to legislate on the technology behind Facebook, they're just not in a place in their life where they're capable of understanding it. You know, the perfect example being the the Congress person who tried to ask uh, whether his cell phone was currently tracking where he currently was to somebody who did not make that particular brand of cell phone. You know, it's it's like, well, we're not the company involved in that. There are so many layers to this because there's software providers. There's, you know, the companies that actually make the physical hardware. And those people are working together to produce an end product. So there, it's hard to unpack those layers. But then on the subject of, like, quality and social media, I think the other thing that will potentially change over time is... Um, advertisers might start wanting more engagement on the ads that they're showing. So a perfect example is on YouTube right now. One of the things they do a lot is they have surveys that they ask you to answer before you watch a video, right? So it'll be like, if you were to buy a car, which of these four car providers would you rate highest, right? And that probably generates more revenue per engagement for YouTube because they have data they can take from it as well as they can go to the advertisers and say like, look, this user wants to buy your car. But it also means that the ads and the quality of content can be higher if they're generating more revenue per view. So I think that that's probably the next evolution of social media marketing is the uh, advertisers won't be paying based on views anymore. They'll be paying based on like actual interactions with their content. I think that that's probably where we're headed. 
it's still funny to see that like you go on some old school websites and banner ads are still there. And it's like, when's the last time anybody clicked on a banner yeah. ad? People still do it. Like it's out there. So, so, I mean, it must, there must be some sort of return. I mean, I think Gary V said something like, heck I'd, I'd pay for chalk on a, on a cave wall if it, if it was cheap enough and it got eyeballs. <laughs> so yeah. true. I mean, it, it really is about how much doll, how many dollars do you have to spend to get somebody to buy one unit, right? Whatever that unit is. So yeah, it will be really interesting, especially with like I, I feel like this new generation where people are a little bit more socially conscious. Where like I'd probably prefer to pay a little bit extra for my food if I knew it was grown with chickens that weren't grown in a tiny little cage and given anxiety pills and growth <laughs> hormones and things like that. Like it's like I feel like our generation, uh, kind of like the millennial even this new Gen Z generation will probably be more conscious of that. going to be really interesting to see if we end up putting our money where our mouth is or if we end up, uh, you know, kind of following through on a lot of this stuff. So uh, probably not a lot of answers, probably just created more questions (laughs) with this topic. It's funny because one of the tweets that I favorited recently was stated saying, we used to be paid to know the answers, now we're paid to know the questions. So... Uh, you got to ask good questions today to get to the bottom of something. You can Google, you can evaluate and find answers, but if you don't know the right questions to ask, you're just going to be lost in the sea of information. Dwight, do you want to kind of introduce what the next topic here is? Sure. So there was a recent Associated Press article that went out that just basically said, uh, or that there was a poll out that said one in four plan to retire or uh, don't plan to retire despite realities of aging. Um, so, uh, and obviously we'll link to this in the show notes, but just kind of thinking that a quarter of the Americans say they'll never plan, to, they never plan to retire, according to a poll that suggests a disconnect between individuals' retirement plans and the realities of aging in the workforce. And of course, the article kind of goes on to talk about numbers and statistics, but let's kind of talk about the overall theme of that article. What do you guys think? Oh, well, there's a lot to unpack there. I think we could, speaking of asking the right questions, I feel like there's a lot of different questions we could ask these people and get some pretty interesting answers. But I think I think probably the two directions that, I, that stand out to me when I look at it is, um, first off, the article references how people's retirement plans might not line up with the reality of aging. My experience is that most people don't actually have a retirement plan. They have like a mental sketch of maybe what retirement looks like. And they haven't really thought about it that much until they're about 55, at which point they start going, oh, crap, I should start paying attention to this. So that's the first thing. um, But the the other thing that stands out to me is that the article kind of references is these people are thinking that they have a choice about retirement. And frankly, medically, there will come a point when they don't. And that's the scarier thing to me is, you know, people assuming that well, I can work as long as, you know, up until age 75 or something. And it's like, well, yeah, but what if you get injured at age 65, which is completely reasonable. I mean, there are plenty of 65-year-olds who are super healthy and can can work a full day, but what if you can't? So I totally agree with the point that people don't always have the option to retire. If your health uh, allows for it, obviously it's great, but um, to your point, you could become injured, could become sick. Uh, so I, I, it was really discouraging to me when people just throw in the towel and say, ah, oh, I'm never going to save for retirement because I'm just never going to retire. Um, I think that's number one, just a bad mental state, uh, for you to just even think that way and to not even try. And number two, 
it's all also a little bit selfish, I feel like, because if you're just, I've had people say, well, I'll just let the government take care of me. And it's like, well, man, you're going to be really sucking off the system here by having a, a Medicare funded or Medicaid funded retirement living assisted home. If everyone has that mindset, that is just not going to be a fun place, number one, for you to stay. And number two, it might not become uh, even viable for our society to continue to fund and operate that type of facility. So I, I really hope people don't ever decide to throw in the towel and just keep trying and keep doing whatever they can. Sure. So I think there's a th- couple things I think of. One is exactly what you're saying, Colin, is like, you know, try to take some of the, take some of some responsibility and think about this and say, it's easier to just blame somebody, whether it's the government or, you know, other people or whatever, and just say, well, this is what I got because you know, but it's, it's your lack of planning. So, but without trying to be so harsh on it, I get it. It's scary. It's really hard to sit there and, you know, think about what this is going to be. And I think the older you are and the closer you are to retirement, it just becomes scarier and scarier. And you kind of, it, it's easy to get into this helplessness of like, well, I can't do anything about it anyway. So why should I even try? But I think, you know, again, if you can take at least some action to at least start, then I think you have a lot more control over what you want your retirement to look like um, because it's going to happen, you know, on your terms or somebody else's. Um, so to at least try to start and, and do what you can um, and at least under, maybe have a better understanding of what that could look like, you know, again, so you can make some good decisions around that rather than just playing the victim. Yeah, I'd also actually encourage people to, to really run the numbers because a lot of times, it's not as bad as it seems. Yeah. If you're in a low income situation, your social security is going to probably be a really large percentage of your income replacement. And if you're able to just continue to work and try to pay down debt and things like that, and you can retire relatively debt free. And I mean, man, that, that income or that social security that if that's your only income stream is going to be untaxed, that could seriously be a large percentage of what you were paying or what you were being paid from your employer and then being taxed and what actually became your net income and what you used to pay for your living expenses. It might not be that bad. So instead of just, like you said, playing the victim, closing your eyes and hoping it all works out, really, really encourage people to, to understand the numbers because I'd I'd love to get dive into uh, and ask questions to Ian's point to some of these folks uh, that are saying they never plan to retire is what does that even mean you know what have you run the numbers have you tried to look at it is it just is, is it really that scary or a lot of these people probably haven't even taken the time to do that yeah I would say on the on the hopeful aspect of this generally people really underestimate their own ability to do these things whether it's retirement buying a house whatever um, my, my experience is that when I sit down with a client for the first time and we go through like actually the planning process, they're always surprised by how easy it could be to tackle this. You know, not, not to say that there won't be work, not to say that they won't have to make changes, but it's all within their grasp. And that's usually very surprising to people. How do you eat an elephant? Right. One bite at a time. Yep, yeah, exactly. And there's so many people that come and they say like, I need to have a million dollars saved before retirement. And it's like, where does that number even come from? That's, you know, there's no right or wrong number to have. So even if you're starting at zero and you're in your later fifties and you're feeling like this is just impossible, it really is not. You got to just start somewhere. Agreed. All right. Well, on that note, 
I guess let's wrap up for the day. Anybody have any closing thoughts? Stop clicking on the clickbait. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, it's not as bad as it seems when it comes to retirement. Don't, you know, don't be scared to look in the closet. It's okay. You know, it, it might be tough at first, but getting started is the hardest part. Uh, and, and I highly encourage you to never give up. Just keep marching forward. And then I think the last closing one from our earlier discussion is, you know, pay attention to how you feel when money's brought up and pay attention to the messages you're sending to other people because they shape the way that our society talks about money. And ultimately, that's incredibly important. All right. Well, see you guys. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.